Hello listeners, and welcome to the Afriwetu podcast where we look to celebrate African history, people and culture by telling our story. As always, our hope is that it fills you with enough curiosity to go and do your own deeper research. Karibuni to any new listeners to the Afriwetu world. We invite you to check out previous Afriwetu episodes, which can be found on this podcast platform. Thank you so much for tuning in today. We are headed back to the west of our continent for part two of the Mali Empire, who dominated the region when at their height. I apologize in advance for the mispronunciation of the words that will definitely happen. Before we begin, just a quick note, please visit us on our socials. Our handle is at Afriwetu across all the platforms. And also tell your friends and family about the Afriwetu world. And now, just sit back and enjoy the journey. For the benefit of you who've joined in on part two of this mighty empire, first of all, I need to ask you, where have you been? Yes, I'm judging you. <laughs> okay, but seriously, I will try and do you a solid and give a quick recap of what was covered in part one. But please go and listen. I promise you it's worth it. So let's kick off with the modern location, which is a very good place to start, I believe. And I sincerely hope you have a map ready. And thinking of this location, it is worth mentioning, but I'm sure you already know this, that the Mali Empire did not just relate to modern-day Mali country. So this empire was, in a word, massive. It hit its height between the 13th and 14th centuries, spanning the territories, wait for it, of modern-day Mali, Niger, Senegal, Southern and Western Mauritania, Guinea, Guinea-Bissau, Burkina Faso, Ivory Coast, Northern Ghana, and the Gambia. So can you just picture how big that is? I mean, look at your map to get a feel. It was one of the largest in the world. I will say that again. It was one of the largest in the world. So a bit of context and background. The Mali Empire was one of the most famous across the continent and with damn good reason, to be honest. This civilization lasted for close to 400 years, with claims that its origins, origins, origins can be traced back to AD 10,000. In the previous episode, we heard how the Mali Empire began as a conglomeration of a number of smaller Mandinka kingdoms. Fun fact, the term Mandinka comes from the term Mandinka and it means the people of the Mandan. The empire expanded from the Mandan Kurufa to encompass millions of people under the empire banner. It was founded by Sundiata Keita, who was nicknamed the Hungering Lion. In fact, when I was reading, he had a number of lion-themed nicknames. 
He led a revolution against Sumanguru, who was the emperor of the Soso Empire that had emerged off the back of the demise of the Empire of Ghana. There's a lot of empires, by the way, just so you know. Sundiata managed to unify the Manding people against their common enemy, and through conquest and the deciding battle of Kaniaga, he became the founding father of the Mali Empire. We shall hear a little bit more about him later. And then, gosh, oh gosh, Afriwetu just had to talk about the Jelwu, the Mande word for griot the official keepers of history and culture in many parts of West Africa. They are nurtured and trained in their skills from a very young age, telling the stories of their people using poetry, prose, music, theater, and using all the types of instruments, such as the traditional lutes like the kora or the goje, or otherwise called nko, the balafon and the ngoni, just to bring all these stories to life. In the Mali Empire context, the most significant story is the epic poem of Sundiata Keita and his founding of the empire. And here, as if by magic, segue right to looking at two of the most famous rulers of the Mali Empire, Sundiata and Mansa Musa. So Sundiata Keita was a prince and it was claimed that he was a descendant of Bilal ibn Hamama. The Hamama being his mother's name, which is perfectly normal in one of the Manding traditions. Bilal was a freed slave. He was very heroic with striking dark skin and a formidable character. His slave origins, defeating the odds, being a devoted and brave man of faith, then rising to the highest levels of society, only made his story more epic, romantic, and memorable. He was a, and I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but here goes, Murtetin, which was a caller to prayers, who was favored by Muhammad, who contributed to the rise in his prominence. This link to Muhammad is something important to note, as many in the noble classes would make these claims as Islam spread to add a certain level of prestige to their heritage. So intertwined did Islam become that the African and Islamic aspects of the empire are sometimes very difficult to separate. Afriwetu would love to hear stories about Bilal ibn Hamama. Please share them using our interwebs. Anyway, back to Sundiata, his descendant. We already know that he declared war and beat Sumungaru in the 1230s. In the last episode, we also learned that this war effort was significantly boosted by Fakoli, who was Sumungaru's nephew, but because of some serious family drama, he turned on him and, okay, this was justifiable, to be honest. Please, go and listen to part one for the full story. Anyway, so all of this stuff we know. So let's just go a little bit further back to the beginning. Mansa Maghan Konfata hears a prophecy that from his and Sogolon Kejo's descendants, there will be the greatest of heroes born. They then had their son, guess who? Sundiata. By the way, quick note, his father then appointed Sundiata with his own personal jelly. Uh, this will become important later. Sundiata's journey to the throne is, however, severely hampered by the jealousy of his half-brother and other family members. It was really bad. 
And once his father died, as his half-brother, Dankaran Tuman, was ascending to the throne, his life was in actual danger, and following a failed assassination attempt by his stepmother, Sasuma Berete, he, his mother, and siblings fled the kingdom. Unfortunately, he also had to leave his jelly behind because he was then captured by his stepfamily. Thus, Sundiata and his kin grew up in exile in the city of Mema, but he was still recognized as nobility and in fact still held a title to reflect this. Meanwhile, our emperor Sumanguru had been very active and then had taken over the Mandinka kingdoms and soon took over Sundiata's homeland after defeating his half-brother Dankaran in battle. The Mandinka needed a champion. They couldn't take being part of the Soso Empire. And so a delegation of Mandinka wise men and those loyal to Manding people then traveled to Mema seeking Sundiata. And when they found him, it is claimed they called him back to his rightful place. And I will be sure to butcher a quote that I found in my research, but just for the sake of the story, allow it. The powerful king of Soso, they told him has heaped death and desolation upon us. The king, Dankaran Tuman, has fled and we are without a master. But the war is not yet finished. Courageous men have taken to the bush and are waging tireless war efforts against this enemy. We have consulted the jinn and they have replied that only the son of Sologon can deliver us. You are that giant. Well, this worked, and Sundiata took his place and waged war against Sumungaru Kante and fulfilled the promise that he would be the great hero of the Mandinka. And he was able to save his jelly, who had been kidnapped by Sumunguru, the same jelly who, guess what, had told his father of Sundiata's destiny. I told you it was important. Anyway. He went on to rebuild from his birth city of Miani and other Mandinka cities that Sumungaru had destroyed as punishment for rebelling against him. He became a well-loved, revered ruler and warrior, earning himself great praise. It was claimed that he's the one who chose the name Mali. He was also part of the Keita family, a dynasty that went on to rule and dominate the empire for years to come. Fun fact. He, together with the wise men of the Mandinka, created the Manden Charter of AD 1236, which was one of the first charters of human rights. So, we have met the founder, who in Malian culture and those descendants of the empire view as the greatest of all the Malian Mansas. So now we come to the Mansa everybody knows, Mansa Musa. feels as if we know everything there is to know about Mansa Musa. His reign was during the best years of the Mali Empire and his significance still cannot be understated to be fair. Yet saying that, Musa's biggest claim to fame was the story of his pilgrimage to Mecca between AD 1324 and AD 1325. 
Like it was this epic tale. And it is still one of the best known stories told till today. His route took him from modern day Mali through Mauritania, Algeria, Libya, through Egypt's Cairo, all the way across to Mecca. His presence in the cities along the way saw the price of gold drop like he had so much that he freely gave it away during his journey. Yes, people, this dude had a singular impact on the price of gold by as much as 20%, it is said in some places. I mean, to be fair, even 1% is enough, right? And as this was the big news story that enthralled the world then and now, it is only fair that Afriwetu covers it. And I just want to mention a few more things about the pilgrimage. So here goes. It is said that not since the biblical times of the Queen of Sheba from modern-day Ethiopia was there such a display of opulence when it came to the traveling royal in the world. Quick side note, again, another African emperor. But there you go. His entourage was said to have about 60,000 people on this pilgrimage, which included like 8,000 guards, 9,000 workers, 12,000 slaves who were dressed in silks and brocade carrying items made of pure gold. And on top of that, there were 80 camels laden with gold. I read somewhere something that was so incredible, I just had to share. That every Friday in the course of this expedition, the workers would build, I kid you not, mosques wherever they were. This expedition caused such a wonder across the globe. It was rumored that the Mali Empire was paved with gold, as was its cities, the richest being Timbuktu. Fact was, it wasn't. And in fact, it was mostly through agriculture and being strategically placed on the trans-Saharan trade routes that it prospered. And of course, the tributes from the tributary kingdoms. Anyway, I am not one to get in the way of a good story. And these tales, of course, sent the European foreigners into a right frenzy. And they searched everywhere for the famed city of Timbuktu and the gold for like centuries. Saying that, because you know Afriwetu isn't always about the obvious, let's also see his other attributes that made him a beloved ruler by his own people outside of this expedition. Mansa Musa was respected by his people as a good and even-handed ruler. His love for art and culture was also very well known, celebrating not just his, but other cultures. He was known to be an astute leader, growing the empire and its coffers through the formidable military conquering the lands, his handling and management of the territories, as well as the management of the trade routes. Mali was smack in the middle of these lucrative routes and played the role as a critical intersection between North and West Africa for the trans-Saharan trade and it was also a big player in the transatlantic trade. From his travels, Mansa Musa brought back with him some elements of Arab architecture and this knowledge contributed to the construction of the famous mosque in Timbuktu. I am so going to butcher this, but here goes. 
Jinguereber, which is spelt D-J-I-N-G-U-E-R-E-B-E-R. Under him, Timbuktu and others like it became international centers. The empire thrived during his reign and was very efficient and by all accounts highly organized. The level of professionalism was on a global scale and the way it handled its trade was really of the highest order. The mines of gold, salt and copper were key contributors to wealth flourishing during his reign. Mansa Musa is said to have ruled for about 25 years and there's still debate as to his actual date of death anywhere between AD 1332 and AD 1337. So we've talked about the size of the empire. So let's look more at the expansion and the territory. The expansion of the empire happened over the years, with each Mansa doing their part. Worth noting that this happened despite the succession battles at the top, check out part one, where I covered this, which was so problematic. The empire continued to expand and was able to extend its control west to the Atlantic, going down towards the forest states and across to the east to the river Niger. Imperial power was seen to center around the commercial cities of Jeanne, Gao, and Timbuktu. The largest push of expansion happened in the 13th and 14th century. All in all, the empire had about 400 cities and polities. Ruling over such a vast area required a well-organized, well-structured governance system. And as with all great civilizations, there was a well-armed and disciplined military who, outside of battle, were deployed in large regiments across the empire, serving as a reminder of the empire's might and quelling rebellious tributary kingdoms. But some of these tributary kingdoms, who were well-behaved, were allowed to retain their local rulers because they actually understood the nuances of the customs and the norms of their people and were still able to be a part of the empire, which therefore meant easing admin burdens and other headaches when running an empire. So it was a win-win, really. Then, similar to the Oyo and Dahomey, one of the strengths of West African civilizations and their militaries were their cavalries. I'll be honest with you, listeners, I always miss say that and say Calvary. So that really took a lot. Please, respect it. Anyway, so... Mali was no exception. The empire did have a standing army with a formidable cavalry. And tens of thousands of soldiers per garrison in their strongholds. Actually, at one stage, the empire's army was so large that only the Russian and Mongol empire had them beat. Think on that. Oh, very quick Afriwe to plug, make sure you listen to series 2, episode 1 and 2 for the Oyo, and episode 5 and 6 for the Dahomey, also on this podcast platform, if you haven't already. Now, 
Speaking of strongholds and key cities, let us take a look at four of the more well-known ones. Jane, Kabu, Gao, and Timbuktu, which were centers of trade, education, and culture. But before we do so, let's take a little peek at city life. You can feel the hot sun beating down and the fresh breeze coming in from the nearby Niger River. The perfect weather. The natural border around the entire city is actually this river, which people use for their daily water needs, to travel to see family, and very importantly, to trade. As we walk through one of this great civilization cities, you can hear the sounds of the busy markets and the huge buzz as we hear the traders and customers haggling. Africans know how to get the best deals, let me tell you, there is actually an art to it. We have landed at the height of the market season, so everywhere we look we see beautiful art, from carvings to carpets to paintings and canvases bursting with color. We hear the sound of the merchants and traders selling their gold dust, the ivory, the animal skins, each one promising a better deal than their competitor. As we turn into one of the streets, across the city walls we see lush green, as the land here is great for cultivation. And in fact, at the entrance, the farmers have come to market their produce. Close to us on display are grains of all kinds, as well as cotton. The clothes I could make with this cotton, but we can't stop. We are herded to see the livestock. You see what I did there? Anyway, it looks like it has been a great harvest all around. So as we keep making our way around the city, our guide then takes us into a large square and we found crowds being regaled by the famous storytellers of the day, the Jelu, who beautifully weave the history and folktales of their audience, each and every community is represented. We want to stay, but man, we just don't have the time, dang it. Quickly, we come up to what looks like the poshest part in the city. This, we hear, is where the nobility live. And close to them are the mosques for ease of access for prayers and learning led by the teachers of religion. All in all, it looks like there are like over 6,000 homes in this area of the city. The houses themselves are built from clay and the roofs are conically shaped, made from specially treated wood suitable for this climate. 
our guide tells us that the process to build is one that is passed down from their ancestors, from one generation to the next. He then tells us, with some pride, the empire is famous for our sculptors and buildings. And even more than that, no civilization can beat our beautiful art, like our pottery or jewelry. Come, 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 come. Have a look at our ornaments for special occasions. I mean, surely. There's something to behold, no? Even for burials, aren't these just beautiful? This is because it is in our blood. We have been doing this since way back in the 9th century. He then leads us to the edge of the city and in a flash, we're back to the present. Very quick thing before we continue. One of the things I could not establish in the research was where the actual capital of the empire was. I know, it's kind of strange, right? There was a lot of speculation. Actually, I say was, but there is still a lot of speculation as to where it was. And all of them are perfectly logical. From being situated on the left bank of the Niger, between Segu and Bamako, to being south of the river Gambia, to being in Kangaba, and also to where Sundiata was born, Niani. Most have based their logical conclusions based on reports that the capital city was near slash surrounded by a large body of water. The prevailing thought seems to be Niani. There are many more theories and Afriwet would love to hear from our brothers and sisters, the descendants of the Mali Empire as to where their ancestors claimed the capital to be. Please hit us up on our interwebs. Now to our important cities, starting with Jenne, spelled D-J-E-N-N-E. This was one of the most important trading cities linked to the empire, having existed from back in 250 B.C. Guys, we've been talking about A.D. This is B.C. And it really came into its own as a center of commerce and one of the key market centers in this part of the continent between the 9th century, so around AD 800, and 13th century, so around AD 1250. It was a commercial center, but it was also well known for the mosques that it housed, with the earliest dating back to the 13th century, which unfortunately fell into great disrepair following the huge flood in AD 1834. In AD 1907, the famous Great Mosque of Jeanne was built on the same site. So yes, it is a bit of a cheat as this is way after the fall of the Mali Empire, but bear with me because I'm leading to a really cool fun fact. The Great Mosque of Jeanne is architecturally one of the most famous buildings and is described as a masterpiece. It is the largest mud brick building in the world. Please, people, the interwebs are your friend, but so is Afriwetu, so I shall put a link to the images on our socials. Back to the original mosque, it was an epicenter of cultural and religious life, designed in what is called the Sudanese style. 
The term Sudanese is derived from the Arabic phrase Bildad al-Sudan, meaning land of the blacks. And that was used to describe the area covering the south of the Sahara Desert and stretching across West and Central Africa. So the building style means both the architectural style as well as the types of materials used. I mean, to be honest, I couldn't leave you guys just hanging, quoting things without knowing what they mean. Next, we have Kabu, spelled K-A-A-B-U. So first, the story of Kabu is an episode all on its own, as it was a city that then spanned out into an empire in its own right, rising after the fall of Mali in the early 16th century. It is today's Guinea-Bissau. But that is for another day. Here, we'll just talk about it in the Mali Empire context. It used to be an independent Mandinka settlement and was absorbed by the empire circa AD 1230. It was well positioned for Mali as a link to the Atlantic trade. It was a central city in the region that governed over a number of different kingdoms. Its governance system was one of the more amalgamated ones that we spoke of earlier, basically meaning the empire and local acting as one. Kabu's people were admired for their well-structured social setup and independence, as well as their military prowess and discipline, which really came in handy when the Mali Empire fell and then they gained their independence and then grew into their own empire. Our third city is Gao, G-A-O situated on the river Niger banks and is around 300-odd clicks from Timbuktu. Gao was first established by fishermen in the 7th century and annexed in the 11th century by the Songhai Empire, becoming its capital. It thrived and was a major player in the trade game in the region. And then in around AD 1290, the Mandinka people came and took the city from the Songhai. In Gao, you would find a successful commercial center. Wealth was to be made through the goods and services of the time, trading in gold, salt, and copper. It was also a huge intersection for those who traded in indentured people. The Songhai reclaimed it decades later, and in AD 1495, the famous tomb of Asikia Muhammad was built. Asikia's tomb reflected the importance of Gao in the region. He was, after all, one of the Songhai emperors. It is still up to date, and in it, Asikia Muhammad's remains can be found. It stands as one of the important buildings in West Africa and was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in 2004. And now, our last city is the very famous Timbuktu. I mean, Poetry, movies, songs, books in modern times have been written about this city. In fact, not just modern times, ancient times and modern times. Its fame is on par with any ancient city across the globe, sharing the stage with cities like Benin, Great Zimbabwe, Kilwa and Sofala. It was officially founded in AD 1110, gaining prominence as a trading center due to its strategic position at the meeting point of the Niger River and the starting point of the Trans-Saharan caravans and access to Northern Africa. It was like proper bang in the middle of one of the most important and major lucrative trade routes on the continent. 
The city's founders were Tuaregs, and the name Timbuktu has a dope legend attached. There are various forms of it, so the one that I chose is that of the old woman, and it goes a little something like this. An old woman had been left to tend the area, as well as a well that had been dug out by the nomadic Tuaregs for their use. She was left as a caretaker of the well as the Tuareg herdsmen traversed the surrounding lands because again, they are nomadic. Her name was Buktu, and in the Tuareg language of Tamashek, apparently, Tin means place, so yup, Timbuktu relates to place of Buktu. I mean, how cool is that? That one of the most famous cities in the world is named after the old woman of the well. My people from that area, Afriwet would love to hear your version. So please share your story of what the origin of the name Timbuktu is. Use the Anchor app, write to us on our socials. Please let us know. So Timbuktu was the leading port for trans-Saharan trade. One could find the most lucrative goods being sold in that period. Precious metals like gold and copper, foods like kola nuts, salt, spices, sugar, and even those like glassware, textiles, and cowrie shells that were used as currency. And then on top of all of that, Timbuktu was also renowned as a true center of academic excellence, the leading learning center of the region. It hosted one of the world's greatest libraries, said to have had about three quarters of a million manuscripts at that time, the Sankore Madrasa, which was found within the mosque of the same name. Many flocked to study at Sankore, plus the other famous universities, immersing themselves in topics like Islamic studies, law, history, geography, astronomy, literature, philosophy, and medicine. In fact, it was well known for having produced some of the best doctors in the world. Timbuktu also had some of the greatest architecture, including the Great Mosque that we spoke of earlier, which was built in AD 1327. I'll try and say the name again. Please do not judge me. Jinguerbe. Anyway, this was built under the rule of Mansa Musa. It also housed two other great mosques, the oldest in West Africa, Sankore of the Great Library, and Sidi Yahya. It was a very cosmopolitan city, housing like 200,000 people at some point in the 15th century. Folks from all walks of life, who were not just from the Malian Empire, but from all over the continent and further afield. It became the headquarters of Islamic intellectuals and a base for spreading the religion whilst giving it a more African face, incorporating it into local traditions and cultures. It was under Malian control from the 13th century until the 17th century, having its golden years between the 13th and 14th century as a commercial center and well into the 17th century as a center of education. And then in AD 1787 thereabouts, after the Malian, the Songhai and the Pashas, the Tuaregs once again took control of the city. The city itself was designated a UNESCO World Heritage Site in AD 1988. 
So, we've heard of the key cities and strongholds of the empire. So I guess now is as good a time as any to look at the trade and economy. So it's kind of obvious that trade was a big deal for the empire. In fact, it had strategically placed cities along all the key routes which were lucrative commercial centers. And it leveraged on the access it had to the goods that came through as well as selling their own goods at premium prices and generating wealth from collecting taxes. I mean, life was good. We already know the types of goods that were sold and traded by the Malian Empire from gold, ivory, copper and salt. And they also had a hand in the slave trade, which was quite lucrative at that period. Now, both gold and salt were precious commodities. Gold, well, we know this. So I know you're scratching your head about the salt, right? Salt was such a precious commodity that it was worth its weight in gold. And that is not a euphemism. Salt was purchased with actual gold dust, like seriously. And the reason for this was simple. And I will read an extract from the UNESCO General History of Africa, Volume 2, which says, Salt is a mineral that was in great demand, particularly with the beginning of an agricultural mode of life. Hunters and food gatherers probably obtained a large amount of their salt intake from the animals they hunted and from fresh plant food. Salt only becomes an essential additive where fresh foods are unobtainable in the very dry areas where body perspiration is also normally excessive. It becomes extremely desirable, however, among societies with relatively restricted diets, as was the case with arable agriculturalists. End quote. So it was used, basically, to summarize all of that, for taste, to replenish lost salt through sweat during labor and being out and about, as well as to preserve dried foods. So both salt and gold were sometimes subject to a very interesting trading practice called the silent trade, one of the oldest types of barter trading used in West Africa. So basically what would happen is that the foreigners would bring their salt, which would be handed to the African middlemen, who would pay for it with the gold dust that they themselves had received from their fellow Africans who had produced it. There were reports that sometimes the actual gold producers would be part of the trade, but not a word was exchanged directly with the foreigners. In fact, all in all, at no point were the foreigners allowed to know the source. There are differing versions as to the reason for this system depending on which civilization one is studying. In the Malian context, it is said to be necessary in order to ensure that people would be forced to deal with them when it came to this trade. Outside of trade, the empire's economy was also contributed to by other sources of income and wealth, which only makes sense considering its size. I mean, these included the tributes, taxes, and agriculture. In fact, there was a heavy reliance, apparently, on agrarian activities such as farming, fishing, as well as hunting and keeping herds. When it came to its territory, the empire was able to collect tax and annual tributes from the many kingdoms within its borders. The tribute came in various forms from grains to weapons, gold and ivory. In fact, the tribute that came in the form of produced goods was used to sustain the cavalry and taxes was used to fund the central government and its operations. This system worked for literally hundreds of years, despite the instability and infighting amongst the ruling class. So, the inevitable question, all was looking quite good. What the 
heck happened? So, after reaching its peak, following a very steady growth from Sundiata Keita to Mansa Musa, things started to gradually decline due to a number of factors. So we'll just point out a few. One of them was competition. So competing trade routes opened up. So the empire lost a significant means to create wealth that would sustain much of its operations, which then led to another factor, which is that these neighboring civilizations were gaining wealth through these competing trade routes and were able to grow and started their own expansion plans, also Aimali's territory, and one by one took those lucrative cities from Mali. Then we had the royal succession mess. And although initially this didn't have a great impact, eventually it did seep into the running of the empire, destabilizing it from the center and then spreading to the territories. Outside of these general problems, I also wanted to highlight a number of events that show how things were falling apart. In AD 1350, the Wolof declared independence and established the Jolof Empire, which is modern-day Senegal. In AD 1430, the loss of Timbuktu to the Tuareg, which was a blow because Timbuktu was honestly the salt of the Malian Empire. In AD 1502, Songhai Soni Ali retakes Gao, which had grown rapidly through trading with Egypt and Sudan and, was, and had become a commercial hub. Although to be fair, they had originally been part of the Songhai, so you know, yeah. The Songhai, though, had invaded from the northeast and then, to add insult to injury, had also taken over the gold and copper mines of the Mali Empire. In AD 1599, the Battle of Genet, which battered the weakened empire. And in AD 1610, the much diminished empire, after Mansa Mahmoud's the forces death saw it broken up what was left of the malian empire the small polity was soon absorbed by the moroccan empire wow so there are so many things that were interesting and fascinating but the one thing I did want to go back to, because I thought it was so cool, was that Sundiata Keita and his Mandinka people created the Mandan Charter of AD 1236, which was the first Charter of Human Rights. And to quote UNESCO, the Charter, one of the oldest constitutions in the world, albeit mainly in oral form contains a preamble of seven chapters advocating social peace and diversity, the invulnerability of the human being, education, the integrity of the motherland, food security, the abolition of slavery by raid, and freedom of expression and trade. Guys, think about that. Back in AD 1236, this is what the Africans were doing. So 
So as we bring it home and come to a close, it is worth noting that although Mansa Musa's pilgrimage was so well known, this doesn't mean that it was the only thing worth knowing about the Malian Empire. The empire was wealthy from trade and had a strong economy in its own right under a number of Mansas. So let us not always cling to just this one guy who, yes, it was impressive, but he was also a sign of the times. His wealth was also from his position as a Mansa. Never forget, African history is not about a single moment or individuals. Okay? Okay. Now, I don't know about all of you, but gosh, this was epic. And I have to take a breather because even as I researched this empire, there was so much to it. One of the things I love about what I do is that every single time I learn so many new things. And I honestly do try and put as much as I can, but I really, really can't. So please, 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 please go and do your own deeper research. One of the great things about African history is that when you just scratch the surface, you see all the wonderful depth and wealth. Yes, we are a fascinating people, but with our own agency. So own it, guys. Don't let other people define who we are. Because first of all, it is not anybody else's right to do so. And secondly, as we all know, it has really never ended well. Instead, revel in our difference, our rich cultures and heritage. We are not a monolithic people. And as much as I love saying we Africans, I do so knowing that as an African, this should be understood as encompassing our rich and vibrant, multi-layered, multicultural differences, our true genius, essence and beauty. And with these parting shots, until next time, Mubarakiwe!